right. Here we are. Here we are. Look at us. Welcome back. back. Here we are. Science in between. I'm Ollie. And I'm Scott. And this is, yeah, yeah this is a thing we do. Give yeah. Give or take once yeah. a week. Give or take, you know, sometimes with a title, sometimes not. You know how it is. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. Uh, just throw me out of the bus right up. Right no, I was just, uh, it's not throwing you out. It's just a I think matter it is, of fact. Actually, I think, I think uh, listeners, longtime listeners of the show understand that when you say that, it is a specific slag against me. Mm-hmm. It is not a, it's a not slag? a general statement about our, uh, about our, our uh, unprofessional nature of this podcast. Unprofessional. Yeah, because it's a high, highly professional. It highly, is highly. Yes. Hi, yes. 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 So this this week we're going to dig into the in between again because it's not really science. We're not like really science this week. We're more education related. You yeah, know, this is the yeah. This this is definitely in the um like more leaning into the tech world uh, education wise than it is in the science world education wise. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think it's a good I mean, way to. I think of frame. Edutopia as sort of a. They're they're uh well you you talk about Edutopia because this yeah, is well, your thing and 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 uh yeah. Like so, Edutopia is a uh, nonprofit organization that is uh kind of like in the think tank world. You know, they're trying to uh inform, influence education. It's uh founded by uh, George Lucas. And so he's like funded it and and supports it, and they have a lot of you know projects that are education related. Some of it's at tech, and some of it's not. Like, and they uh, put together a newsletter, a monthly newsletter on on research and education, but amongst other things. So you, you can subs- go on the site; and it's free. It's just, you can subscribe, and you get you know emails. Like you need more emails, but. Um, but if if you sign up, then you get like you know at different times you'll get like the year end stuff and a year end uh, email came out just like a, a week or two ago, and it was uh, the top ten research articles, uh, the most ten most significant education studies of 2022, and that's the the title and it was authored by Yuki Tarada and Stephen Merrill and if I mangled each any either one of those names I apologize. Um, I don't know. Um, it looks like both of these folks work for uh, Edutopia. They both uh, are in their education research um, group, and they're the ones who put together the monthly newsletters around research. But they selected these 10, and they don't really talk about the, the metrics behind them. But uh, Scott and I thought we both would just go through and talk about them, you know, as a good yeah. way to – and, and talk about like how, you know, how important they are or maybe even like, I don't know critique them a little bit, you know, not necessarily the articles, but maybe, you know, the perspectives they share, you know? Um, I think that's fair. I mean, just to say, and um, I mean, I, uh, I think to be clear so that we, we, um, we have a POV on these folks, like these are not, um, these are not active educational researchers. These are practitioners who have a particular focus, right? So they are in a, in a, in a research world where they're interested in applying research to the work that they do, but they're, I don't think active researchers. And, um, and so I think that they're mostly looking for articles that they see as having practical significance for the work that they do. So when they say, you know, most impactful, they're talking about which ones do we think have something to say about our current schooling and how might 
they be applied to the kinds of problems that we're interested in. So just, you know, not well, because any list has a point of view and has sure. affordances and constraints. So I just want to make sure we're so so just the little backstory. I just yeah. clicked on the bios for each one of them. Yuki Tarada yeah. uh, is the research and standards editor for Edutopia in and they uh, have a background uh, in informal and formal science learning. Yeah, and, and, and they were elementary. at uh, Lawrence at, Hall of Science. Yeah. yeah, yep, and they have some background at uh, UC Berkeley in general. Um, and then Stephen Merrill was a former high school teacher, um, mm-hmm. uh, taught English and history, and is uh, now works with you know all sorts of publications, CNN, Outside Magazine. And, you know, and they both work. Yeah. She, he's the chief content officer for Edutopia. Mm. 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 Hey, not a bad, hey. not a bad gig. Hey, yeah. here's a made up yeah. title for you. Chief yeah. content officer. What do you do? I make content. Well, I think you're the chief content officer for oh. science in between. I, I am not the, think that's true. I'm the vice or the assistant <laughs> to the. <laughs> assistant associate vice provost to. <laughs> And uh, vice right. president for <laughs> new projects. Yeah. Okay. Have you ever, have you ever we, seen that? Like you could come up with your a title that there's this one online. This online you could go and put it, and it will um, make up a title for you in the uh, higher education. It is be awesome. Good. That would be good. <laughs> there's yeah. a site that does that. It yeah, is you, awesome. Like a four page title. Like my. Yeah. I don't really need a CV. I just have a title. It's real yeah. long. Yeah. It's like wow. What's that? Wow. What's that person do? Wow. Uh, Important stuff. Wow. Wow. All right. So the first one, uh, the first article, and we'll share it to the article in, in our show notes, but the first yes. one is, and these all came out this year, um, is uh, talking about uh, the relationship uh, between relationships and rigor. Is it possible for a teacher to form positive relationships with students and still hold high standards? They framed that right? Yeah, you framed that right. I mean, I mean, I think... My immediate response to seeing this article is uh, the exact reverse, which is, is it possible to have a rigorous curriculum if you don't have relationships with your kids? But okay. Right. I mean, fair enough. But they found that you can do both, you know, that they, right? Right. This was in, this was in not, I mean, none of these were in like hokey journals. No, no, not at all. Right. This is in learning and instruction, which is not yeah. a hokey journal at all. Um, and no, so the, and, the, the, and for, for those of you listening at home, hokey is a, a term of art. That's a, it means something quite specific. It means impact factor less than. No, I'm just kidding. It does not. Right. Mean that. I'm just, well, there, there it, you want to operationalize. Oh, hokey. I did want to. I did. I did want I did want to operationalize <laughs> hokey. Nice. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I think you 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 frame that really well. It's like. Okay, is it, you know, everything we've talked about uh, since almost like the beginning of this is how important relationships are, right? It's so important. Like this is – teaching is relational work. And while this is really impactful, it's like, well, yeah, of course. Like relationships, that's what this job's all about, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean – like when I look, so I went and looked at the article, by the way, uh, learning and instruction has an impact factor of 6.3, which actually is very high. If you believe in impact factor as a, as an equitable measure of the value of a journal article, which I do not, but, um, that said, uh, they, 
yeah, they the thing. So for me, the 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 thing that always has is a bit of a red flag for me is when I see something like they have this figure one that shows a relationship between three variables with arrows in between it. Um, and so there, for me, this idea of high quality teaching practices being separable from positive teacher student relationships, that's where for me, the study is a little bit, uh, doesn't make sense because for me, I don't understand how you can do high quality instruction without positive teacher student relationships. Um, you can do instruction, um, but high quality instruction where students actually learn in meaningful ways and understand what you're trying to teach them. I think doing that in, in a vacuum outside of positive teacher student relationships, I mean, it's not impossible, but it's nearly impossible. So, um, so I, I mean, it's nice to have a study, I guess, to point to, to say, Hey, um, but even the way it positions it, where it's like rigor is the priority. And right. the question is, does rela- having relationships contribute to rigor or not? I think that's where it gets a little backwards for me. Well, uh, just to kind of uh, set up a little bit of how, how this was just uh, was done in case someone's listening. They, they looked at uh, 285 school districts uh, in I think this was Indiana that they pulled this from. Uh, I might be wrong, but they pulled 285 school districts and they used um, their teacher evaluation system. They have a, a something called the Network for Educator Effectiveness. It's in Missouri, sorry. Um, and what they did was they looked at that and what's called the in-task standards, that, that uh, the Interstate Teacher, teacher Assessment and Support Consortium, as if we need another acronym in yeah. teaching. Uh, and so what, then they looked at those and also uh, looked at achievement data, right? And and to see, you know, how those things correlated. Sure. I mean, yeah. it's a, it, a lot of these studies I think we'll see as a pattern is um, are some kind of meta-analysis where they gather lots of other studies and report on those. Um, and, and I think especially for, you know, again, going back to the audience that we're talking about, especially for practitioners, these are often useful. They see these as useful kinds of studies, these meta-analyses, because instead of just having to look at individual research reports, they can look at what's the big picture here. Um, Of course, you know, as with anything, when you go to the big picture, you lose a lot of detail. So there are consequences for, for this broad generalizability. Um, Because again, for me, this idea that like good relationships can be associated with, with high rigor. um, Yeah. I, I I love the title hmm. is, is, Positive teacher student relationships may, may. Lead to, may lead to better teaching. <laughs> oh, that's great. It's like, ah, uh, maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe. That's maybe. one of those times where that, like, we in 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 research, we want to use tentative language. That might be the time where we don't want to use tentative language. Yeah, but yeah. again, I mean, I think we talk a lot about this. I think it, it, some of it is about. The perspective. I mean, it is interesting to look at this research and really think about what perspective did the did the folks take on learning. Um, and I think this is another pattern that we're going to see is is the way that they think about learning is um, is very cognitive, right? It, and in some cases, extremely so. Like it's about 
um, memory over time and how you space out activities and, and, um, so like solving problems, if giving all 12 problems today versus giving three today, three in a week and three a week later, the impact of that, that on student learning. And for me, you know, again, that feels like a weird way to think about learning. So, but, but there is a built-in perspective there that learning can be atomized, can be quantified into small measurable attributes um, and also can be separated into core components or teaching can be right that you can right. separate high quality instruction from positive teacher student relationships. Um, yeah. yeah. All right. Let's move to the next one. Let's uh, carry on. Uh, so this is one I actually shared with some folks because I, I have some folks who are at work, work in like literacy uh, education and this, you know, highlighting is one of those things that it's uh you know, they, they push for, or people say, Hey, you got to highlight, but you know, it's about like the intentionality of highlighting, you know, cause it's mm -hmm. like getting closer to the text and like actually engaging with the text. And so this is a, uh, a meta analysis, um, of 36 different studies. And it's the effects of learner generated highlighting and instructor provided highlighting on learning and text. It's a meta analysis that appeared in educational psychology review. Yep. And so this is this is one that like just hits home with all the impact factors, the effect sizes and all that. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Delicious. Good numbers there. Yeah. yeah I mean, I numbers, think numbers, numbers. I think it's possible that I fell asleep halfway through the title of this, <laughs> but I'm not sure. They found 36 published articles uh, from 1938 to 2019. So the, the thing that stuck out to me was. Who the heck was highlighting in 1938? And that, you know? and that's not even one a year. <laughs> yeah, like, that's I, not even one a year, right? It's not even close. Is it one every no. two years? Let's see. 1938 to it's because it's it's got to be 80 something years. So it's not even one every two uh, years. Yeah. Yeah. From 1938, right? Yeah. Not a whole lot of people studying highlighting, you know? I can't imagine why. I mean, I I would get out of bed every morning excited if I knew that today I got to study more about highlighting. Well, this is one of the times where I was just like, hmm, is this like really one of the 10 most significant? Is this like really? I don't know. I don't know the metric. Do you that, not uh, know? Do you not know? Come on. I think you do know. Why, why this was no. selected as being I think I think it is not. It is not significant, and I have, it is impossible for me to understand how they selected this as a significant yeah. study. Um, you know, yeah, it's I, like walking upstairs raises your heart rate. It's like okay, fantastic, and so, yeah, okay. Here's here's I'll I'll read the takeaway, and, and then we'll we can move, move on. on. Move yeah, on. the results showed that learner generated highlighted improved memory, but not comprehension. Mm. Mm. An instructor provided highlighted highlighting mm. improved both memory and comprehension, and they in, included the effect sizes of that. So, yeah, I think I fell asleep while you were doing that summary, but, um, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so basically, like, if the teacher helps the kid know what's important to highlight, they're more likely to both remember it and understand it, I think is essentially the way I would translate that. Into, I think you nailed that. Yeah. Yeah. Which again, like, okay, fine. Let's move along. Yeah. I think, okay. So I, I think the next one though mm. is like, that one's just like, it was, 
I like to for for those of us. It's another one of these times where your core beliefs, like the last one, was about relationships. Our core belief is relationships matter, right? Mm-hmm. And and it's great to see some research that goes, ah, yeah, here, you know yeah. what, you you're, you're on out. the right page. Turns out you're right. And the the next one I think is more of that. So the next one is a landmark study strikes a resounding note for inclusion. Mm-hmm. And so it was a large st- scale study that was done in, this one was Indiana. Um, and they looked at uh, all of the students in the state of Indiana that were placed in uh, either inclusive or less inclusive settings. Mm-hmm. So that's like a, that's a term of art in special education. So, so inclusive means more often in classrooms with quote unquote regular education students. So in mainstreamed is another way this is sometimes described. That's maybe older lingo for it. But the idea that sometimes special education students are in the classroom with all the other kids, and sometimes they're in a special education classroom that's separate and they have smaller numbers and, and a higher teacher student ratio, basically. Yeah. And so while, you know, it's, you know, the law that students have to be placed in the least restrictive environments. Yes. Um, and again, that's a, that's a term of phrase that is, yep. uh, that and it's is, open to interpretation specifically by special education teachers who I think it, it's worth saying, and this is not a knock against special education teachers, but the, to a certain degree, it's in their self-interest to have kids who are designated as special education and in need of support because that's what their job is. Um, and I'm not trying to be cynical. I'm just trying to say like this idea of what least restrictive means is right. even that is open to interpretation. So I can say Ollie's least uh, restrictive environment involves him being in one out of the seven classes during the day in a regular ed classroom and the rest of the time he's in special ed. And that's the, so it's just worth noting. Yeah. And I think it's, it's part of my core belief that we should be putting students in inclusive environments as much as possible, regardless of who the students are. I mean, I I believe students can learn. And I think that putting them in settings where they can learn the best is with, with peers and in regular classrooms and, you know, and, and this study looked at uh, eighth grade students in 28, 2013 through graduation in 2018. And they found that students with disabilities spending 80% more time in inclusive classrooms did better in reading and math than peers spending more time in special education classrooms. Yep. I mean, you know, to your point, I think this is the kind of study where, I mean, part of me says, well, of course, but part of me says, well, at least there's some empirical data here that indicates that this is the case, right? So I think, yeah, it's, um, I mean, on some level, it goes back, well, there's two things that it makes me think of. So one is the earlier point about relationships, right? I mean, kids learn in environments where they have good relationships. So if you have kids um, that are separated from the rest of the groups of students of their age or in their school, a lot of their school day, it's difficult for them to develop relationships with other kids because they are limited to the group of kids that are in the special ed room with them and the teachers that they're being taught. Um, Whereas if you have kids in mainstream environments where they're interacting with lots of other kids, um, excuse me, that was terrible. 
Um, <laughs> but I think uh, in a, in addition, the flip side of that is important too because when uh, the middle school where I work, there there's a the kids are um, heavily included. I don't know what the right yeah. word is, but there are kids who have significant. Um, uh, special education identifications and they're in regular classrooms. Like they're kids who have headphones on because the mm-hmm. stimulation is too much for them if they don't have those things on. And, and, um, and what I, what I see in there is that the other kids normalize this. Like it becomes yeah. like, Oh yeah, that that's just who Bob is. Right. Like that's the way Shelly behaves or whatever. Right. Like it's right. not a thing like, Oh, that's so weird. What a weird kid. It's like, well, that's just the way they are. And, uh, they're not like me, but there's lots of kids in this room that aren't like me. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I grew like we both grew up a, a time before, you know, For sure. the law changed. And so I went to an elementary school, which was the school for special ed kids. Got it. And yeah. so they bust them from around the district and we had a pretty large district and they just backed up these, the, the buses to the downstairs basement and we never saw those kids yeah, at all. Right. Like they didn't, they didn't have lunch with us. They didn't have like, and it, there was really a divide between us normal kids. And I'm using air quotes. The, yep. the listeners can't hear that, you know, and them, you know, sure. the, 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 the not normal kids. Right. And I'm using that, you know, pejorative mm-hmm. in, intentionally. Um, but then, jump ahead the law changes and i'm in like maybe my second year of teaching and uh you know they have a big meeting with me at the beginning of of the year because there was a student who he was going to have his first regular ed class ever and i was going to be his teacher mm. and they're like you know you cool with this and i'm like well yeah i'm cool with it yes yeah. Yeah. you know and they're like well he you know he's only got an iq of whatever and i'm like yeah, right. okay we'll figure it out you know like we'll you know yeah. And I, I said, I'll just modify assignments as needed and we'll just figure it out. Like, yeah, sure. Family was super nice. The kid was awesome. The kid was yeah. awesome. And you know what? I had to v- modify very few assignments yeah. for this kid. He was awesome. It was a great experience for me. It was a great experience for the kid. It was a great experience for the other kids in the class too. Like, yeah, there was no, there was no losers from that experience. Like everybody was better by having Eric in my classroom, you know? And, and so it's been, you know, for the last 29 years, my core belief that that's the way we should be doing this. And this, you know, this, this kid, you know, he had spent 16 years and 15 years in in not a regular classroom and i'm like that was missed opportunity for him and re- missed opportunity for others as well right yeah and i think and, and so that, this research a, yes that's a generous way to describe it right i mean i think um it was it's a lot more than a missed opportunity for a lot of these kids right like this is this is not um this is an this is an equity issue this is a social justice issue uh, not not to mention the fact that those the kids that are identified in special education, there's research about this too, are disproportionately marginalized students, right? Typically students of color. So, I mean, yeah, it's very awkward territory when you start saying we're going to identify these kids as special ed and then remove them from the regular classroom and put them in this other environment. I mean, it's, yeah. So, well, I mean, the the, the other part of this, the other part of this was they, they looked at the diploma types, Mm-hmm. Right, and they found, and I guess in Indiana they have different diplomas. Um, yeah. and so the students that were in more inclusive settings, um, got 
uh, there were differences. They had more, um, you know, I guess the more rigorous diplomas. So right. like, I, I don't know about Indiana. New York has this in that they have a, a standard diploma and a regents diploma, and you have to take different exams to get the regents diploma than you do to get just the regular diploma. So my guess is Indiana is some version of that, where if you sure. take a certain group of courses or a certain number of tests, then you get this more rigorous diploma. So, yeah. So, so that's an indicator too. Um, you know, I mean, yeah, it's All nice right. that, that, uh, they're doing this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the, the next one is, and I don't know if we're going to get through 10 of these, but yeah. not. maybe we'll, but, maybe we'll shoot for fewer and see how it goes or, yeah. or we could pick ones that we, you know, think are really interesting or worthy. Well, of. I love the next one, okay. which is about, about sketch noting, like, cause this is something that, so one of the things I've, I've done with my students over the last couple of years is having them do close reading assignments before they come, you know, to class. So I give them a list of like 10 different ones they can choose. And they're all like strategies to help, you know, you know, get them to engage with the text. And, you know, rather than give them a quiz of just like lower level stuff, I try to get them to, and one of the uh, close reading strategies I give them is sketchnoting. And I say, look, sketchnote the chapter, sketchnote, upload your your picture. And I get a lot of people who push back on this, right? They're like, sketchnoting, come on, you know? Mm-hmm. And so the this is again in learning and instruction. This came out in February. Drawing to improve meta comprehension accuracy. Mm-hmm. And so what they found was they looked at uh, meta comprehension accuracy of science text for fifth grade. Um, and they looked at uh, whether, you know, sketchnoting, drawing would help. And they looked at uh, a bunch of different factors, comprehension, you know, retention and all that and sketchnoting. And as the, as the, uh, re, as Edutopia framed it, sketchnotes and concepts Mac work even better than you might think. Mm. And, and they found that, uh, Fifth graders who'd made organizational drawings outperformed their t- peers who tried representation representational drawings. So this this goes back to the concept mapping stuff, like mm-hmm. trying to map out like how things relate and how things are organized can help them better understand. And it's not even really that important whether the stuff is 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 completely accurate. It's just like the making sense, right? Making sense of it. And making, you know, there's some of that's just, this is uh, a rehearsal technique, right? Yeah. So. Well, I mean, it goes back to the idea of right and wrong answers. Like, that's not really the goal here. The goal is to think through this stuff. Um, and they they specifically def- differentiate between um, this, the different two different kinds of drawing. So they're looking at um, drawing that's focused on comprehension versus um the ones that are more organizational, right? Which sketchnoting is more organizational because you have to do you, your, and, and I think typically the kind of notes that we take are focused on comprehension. What were the important words? What were the right. definitions of those words? Not what are relationships um, between those words? And, you know, I mean, again, for me, this feels like a, sure, that makes sense. Um, it, re- it requires more thinking and more sort of, uh, 
relational work in a different sense here, relating ideas to each other to do sketchnoting because you have to put them in relation to each other as opposed to just recording them. So if you're just recording, it seems likely you're going to not understand the relationships nearly as well as if you're forced to try and think about like, well, what's the relationship between this idea and that idea? So, um, but yeah, I mean, it's certainly nice to see this as a study. Yeah, absolutely. It's like some of that research where they talked about like taking notes on on you know a laptop. Well, they found mm, that most yes. a lot of people what they were just doing was transcribing what was being said, right? And and they found that that had very little impact on retention or comprehension or anything. And so, yeah. um, had, taking paper pencil notes where you actually have to like you can't keep up, so you're like constantly like you know processing the Making information, choices. right? And that's you know leads to better understanding and yeah, yeah turns out there you go turns yeah. out i think the next one is one that i thought i i thought would resonate with you right there's actually two parts there they they lump three articles into this but i thought that the outdoor nature of this stuff would be really things that would resonate with you Scott. Yeah, I thought that one was more compelling. The 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 first one, um, which is like very bio focused, it like the article is called "Consolidation of Human Skill Linked to Waking Hippocampus Neocortal Replay." Um, so that sort of gets tells you where in the in the spectrum this is between a biological focus and a cultural focus, right? So. Um, so that was very much like if you practice for 10 seconds and you rest for 10 seconds and then you practice for 10 seconds, this improves your, your performance and memory and, and skill compared to just practicing for 20 seconds or even practicing for 30 seconds. So this idea that like that 10 second rest, that processing break it allows your brain to do some internal work, uh, in between that improves your the quality of of the work that you're doing. So, I mean, that's that's interesting. I mean, the other ones were more um like uh, uh, that being outside for relatively short periods of time. I forget what the low end was. It might have been 5 minutes up to like 90 minutes. Um like that improves learning as well, right? So so to have a sort of break, especially a right. break that involves an interaction with nature, is uh is a good for learning, which you know I think again I mean I, I sort of when we get to the end wherever we end this I have I have a sort of metric that I use to think about this which I don't think is going to surprise anybody but w in terms of how I think about these studies and um and well I think this is another one where it's like recess recess matters these are yeah. like like they found that kids going outside and playing when they came back in they were better like at like paying attention, like more focused, more able to participate, less off task behavior. And mm -hmm. it's like, no, no, no kidding. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's, yeah. It's so that's the middle study actually. So there were three right. studies. I described right. the first and the third and you described the second, just so we're right. clear that they're, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what basically as a group, it says people need brain breaks. They need to take some time off and they, and if they can do stuff, you know, for longer periods of time and they could do it outside, it has better effects. Mm -hmm. There it is. Summarized. There, there you know? Is. Summarized. And hold on. Hold on. You know what? We've been doing this for years. It's called recess. Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> but then what do we do? We, we're we taking them away, you know? Yeah, right. All right. Well, and this is related to the, I 
Oh no, that's a different one. I'm oh, sorry. We'll sk- I'm not, I'm not going to skip ahead. So, um, yeah. So I think, I think the upshot of that is, um, not surprisingly, maybe a, a, a translation that we can do here to connect it to some of the AST things that we think about is this idea of quote unquote on task behavior, right. right. Is a big thing. And, and I think one of the, one of the critiques of ambitious science teaching or forms of pedagogy like that, where kids have more uh, autonomy and agency is that, Oh, they're going to be off task. They're going to be talking about stuff that's not relevant. And I think to some extent, what this uh, one interpretation of this kind of research is to say off-task behavior is not explicitly only off-task behavior. It's also important processing time in between, right? And I'm not saying kids should sit for the whole period and talk about what they're doing over the weekend or how to beat Fortnite uh, uh, with whatever character they have, right? That's not productive. But if there's five minutes of that in between times when they're more focused on on the science stuff that they're talking about, I think it probably helps in many ways, um, not just in terms of the brain break, but also in terms of the social piece and in terms of the relationship piece and all that. So I think there's lots here that make sense. So jumping ahead to the next one, because mm. I think uh, what, what else we need to say about reset, all that <laughs> stuff? Nothing. Yeah. All right. So the next one's about class classroom design, specifically about the stuff that gets put in wall on the walls in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't find this really useful because it, it basically said some of it's important, but too much is too much. And it's like, how do we operationalize that? And how do we put that into practice? Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, I've never been a big bulletin board guy, you know? So yeah. it kind of feeds my, you know, my soul a little bit because I was like, okay, I just had, basically I would, I'd had the same stuff up all year. All year. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Actually, let 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 me just call it out years. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> some of these yeah. posters were up for like, you yeah. know, four or five years. And, you know, I'm okay with that. Right. You know? The only time those posters weren't up were when you were doing PSSAs and you had to roll them up because kids weren't allowed right. to see them because they were a study aid. Right. Uh, but but they I mean, there I, I I think if you go in there, there there are there is some interesting things if you're interested in that kind of stuff. I didn't really see much meaning in it. I thought it the way it was framed, it was cl- on classroom design and argument for caution and common sense. I thought it was going to be about like, you know, how do we set up classrooms like learning spaces? And it wasn't that at all. It was really about, you know, um, what we put on the walls. Yeah. It's like, meh. yeah. Right. I mean, their summary is hang academically relevant, supportive work on the walls and avoid the extremes working within the broad constraints suggested by common sense and moderation. So that that summary tells me something about like impact. So if if the result of the study is suggested by common sense and moderation, I don't know how helpful that study is (laughs) in terms of impact. It's like, Like, what do you do with that? Dummy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I should have thought of that. Huh. <laughs> Glad we have research to tell me to use my common sense. That's super helpful. Um, all right, you want to stop the next one, or do we want to skip that one? Uh, I, I think that it's fine. Kids, should, okay. kids should play. See earlier memo <laughs> about recess. Carry on. Yeah, uh, I think, yeah. Meta meta analysis. Thirty nine studies found that you know play is good. Play is good. Yes. Awesome. 
If you um, could see me, I'm hitting my head with a microphone because I'm like, you got to be kidding me. Like that's, you know, talk about common sense. All right. Uh, the next one uh, is about a better way to learn ABCs. Yeah. Again, uh, I, I have very little to say about this. I'm about as interested in this as I am in uh, moss growing, but um, but maybe you have a deep thought about this that you want to share. Well, so I think it's important to talk about what the article says. It, 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 what it says is that uh, using whole body movements when learning. Right. I mean, this it's. It stinks of bad interpretation of multiple intelligences to me. It's like kids yeah. should be kinesthetic learners, not just visual and auditory learners. It's, come on, man! Like, really? They don't. They don't. Say, they don't actually use kinesthetic. I don't think they in the do art. not. But they, they use movement based teaching. That's the the phrase. Movement based teaching. Movement. Kids should move. Yes. Mm. And if they. Uh, if they slither like a snake when they hiss the sound, they'll remember it better. And there it is. Yeah. And how is learning defined? It's defined in terms of memorizing, remembering, remembering. They will remember yeah. that thing better. Okay, fine. Okay. So have kids. I mean, I'm all in favor of having little kids wiggle while they do the S sound. I, I'm not opposed to that. I think it's adorable and it probably does help them remember what the S sound is and fine, but oof, oof. talking about right. that is one of the most impact, 10 most impactful studies in education for the whole year. Yikes. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So that's, uh, yeah. The next one, next number nine. One was uh about when do students push pause when they watch a video mm. okay <laughs> all right <laughs> hey turns out and, they press pause occasionally yeah. yes uh th that this was i mean i think it was uh interesting they, they were able to mine data from you know this huge German video platform, which, you know, I guess is used in a bunch of schools for, you know, learning content. And so they had these lots of this huge data set and looked at when students push pause and found that uh, they revealed that perceived difficulties in comprehension and meaningful structural breakpoints in the videos were associated with increased pausing behavior, meaning when it got hard, when it got hard, or when the, there was a break in the presentation, students hit pause. <laughs> yeah, I'm once again striking my head with the microphone. I mean, they the summary that the Edutopia people say is learners who encounter, quote, complex learning materials have, quote, low prior knowledge or exhibit, quote, quote, low working memory capacities. So yeah. not only do they say this, they also put all these kids in a deficit perspective. Like they have, they're dumb and their brains don't work very well because they have low memory capacity. And that's why they're hitting pause. I mean, it's, it's just. Yeah. Like, yeah. And, and again, holding this up as. Well, I mean, I thought the cognitive load aspect would really resonate with you because I know that any that's my favorite thing. <laughs> that is your favorite thing. I, I have it tattooed on my arm. I am a high <laughs> cognitive load guy. It says that right yes, now. It does. And then it has yeah. a citation to somebody who talks about high cognitive load. Mm -hmm. 
Yep. Pro- probably an old white guy, but that's just a guess. <laughs> All right. Uh, the last one uh, is... Uh, so... <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So I'll, I'll read. I, ha- I so, had high hopes for it when I read. When I read, you need to read number ten as it's written, be, as they wrote it in the Edutopia. Because when I read that, I was like, "Oh, this this could potentially be really interesting." It's an authoritative study of two high impact learning strategies. Spacing and retrieval practices are two of the most effective ways to drive long term retention. Well, confirmed. That's not the. That's not in the title. An authoritative study of two high impact learning strategies. That's what I was like. Oh, is this going to be a comparison of you know status quo teaching and and ambitious or inquiry based teaching, which or project based teaching because it said utopia and they love project based teaching. Um, yeah, you know, turns out. Well, this this is a you know comes from Nature Reviews Psychology. Mm-hmm. Sure does. Which I, I've never heard of that journal. Um, but basically focusing in on, you know, retrieval practices and, and, and spacing. This is the idea that we don't cram that what we do is we, you know, space out learning and just, yeah. And here, you know, look, cramming doesn't work. Right. So this is the one I briefly referred to, which is, you know, if you, if you're going to learn, I mean, again, what they define as learning, but if you're going to learn how to do math problems, Doing 12 of them today is not as good as doing three today, three tomorrow, and three the next day, and three the next day. Yeah. Right? So, um, yeah. I mean, that's not the whole study, but that's that that's what spacing is, um, is this idea of spacing things out. And, and you know, there's a lot of... Um, you know, as you would expect from this, these kind of perspectives on learning, there's a lot of notions about like, well, how do we optimize spacing, right? So how do we figure out like, well, should you wait two days or three days or one day between spacing? How much practice should you do on each day relative to the spacing between these things? And those, that sort of um, stuff is, is, is a focus. Um, Yeah. Well, I will say that you know, say for maybe two or three, um, I found them all to be kind of meh, right? I mean, there, there's like, the I think that- in this top 10 thing? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I think the inclusive education one, awesome, right? Mm-hmm. The one that talks about, I mean, I think the, the play one and the recess one are important. I think those would be really important to, to share with folks. Um, and uh, I don't know, what else? Relation, relationships. Well, the relationship one, and rigor, yeah. Yeah, that one- I mean, outside of those like three, you know, the rest of them are like, eh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a, 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 a slant, a bias, like almost all of these come from psychology based journals. And so that I think that feeds into your belief of that there's this, you know, cognitive slant, right? That, yeah. you know, and I think that's apparent here is that very few of these. I don't think any of them used qualitative based work at all. Like they were nope. all like quantitative studies that were either big, huge meta meta analyses right. or ones that were looking at achievement data in some way and doing some sort of, you know, statistical analysis and trying to, you know. Yeah. Well, in fairness, 
yeah. if you're going to do a meta-analysis, it, you need to have qualitative studies as your baseline. Like you can't, I mean, it's possible, but it's very difficult to do a meta-analysis for qualitative work, or at least it's a very right. different process. So right. if you're going to have, you know, 30, 50, 100 studies and try and generalize across that, well, you're almost automatically into some sort of quantitative analysis, and therefore the basis for those studies should be quantitative as well because you're extracting quantitative from quantitative. I mean, for me, the thing if i if I read these that which I did, so when I read these summaries and then looked at the articles, you know the 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 core pr- principle that I would take away from this which is a core principle that I already had going into this is the more authentic the learning environment, the more likely it is for students to learn Mm. high quality and understand things well. Right. And I think mapping that all of these map onto that, right? Like real human interactions involve relationships. So if there are relationships in the classroom, kids are likely to learn better. Why, why is it better for people to be included instead of excluded? Well, because I think authentically, that's what we want. Like we live in a society that's very diverse. So our classroom should be very diverse um, because that helps people understand and learn things in meaningful ways. Not to mention the fact that lots of diversity provides lots of diverse perspectives on the things that you're learning, which makes reasoning better because, and this, this goes back to the How Minds Change book that we, we'll talk about again sometime, which is, you know, so for me, that's the fundamental principle right. is, is you say, is this more like how people live in the world and learn in a in a quote unquote natural or authentic way? The closer it is to that, the more likely it is to help kids actually learn. The more like it is school, quote unquote school, the less likely it is for kids to learn. So um, I mean, for me, it's that that would be the big takeaway. Yeah. That's a, that's a good way of synthesizing them. No, I don't know if I have much to add to that, um, but but I think that's a good way of, you know, building a constellation out of these, you know, or looking for the common oh, nice themes metaphor. across them. Yeah. Yeah. Constellation. I like that. Yeah. yeah I mean, I think, um, you know, kids should play. Kid, kids kids are like. And school kids. needs to be more. School right. needs to be more than just learning. Right. It needs to. And I think, you know, this is one we, you know, we didn't talk much about, but um the one in ter- where the uh, classrooms, you know, about like what gets put on the walls and stuff. Yeah, one of the things that they, too, yeah. yeah, but in that, the one part of that that I think f- feeds into it is that they found that um, whenever there were, um, there was a study or a, one of the uh, studies that they referenced was that uh, they had used uh, female scientists. They had used posters of female scientists, and they found that when when those were placed in the classrooms, that the students performed better. The f- female students performed, and there was a that representation and belonging mm-hmm. matters. Right. And it's yeah. like again, that comes back to your. I, I mean, if if people have a sense of belonging in the classroom, you know, then that that matters, and that comes back to the relational stuff. And yeah, yeah. I mean, to 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 tweak and add on to one thing you said about you know, schools should be more about learning. I think the way we can think about that is learning should be more uh, more than just remembering stuff that we right. think is important for kids to learn. That's not that's not how schools should be organized. It's like we've made a list of all the things that are important for kids to remember, and school is about getting them to remember those things better because that's the way schools are organized now, and it's not good. It's right. bad. Um, 
And so I think that's the. You just want to clarify that it's yeah. not good. It's bad. It's bad. Okay. Bad. Well, all right. Yeah. So if there's any <laughs> confusion bad? about that, it, it's it's not good, for sure. I yeah. think it's actually bad. Um. So so yeah, I think this idea that it's not that schools are more uh, about more than learning. It's that learning is is more than just remembering facts and yeah. and. And that means that it's about relationships and it means that it's about authenticity, learning to work and live with other people and negotiate meaning with them in ways that are productive for everybody. Um, and that's what school should be about, not about like, you know, can you retention name all the parts of the cell? Like, yeah. and by the way, I can't name well, all the I parts of the cell. One of the things that except, was except for the mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell, uh, it is. I don't Everybody know what it does. Knows that. I, don't, yeah. I don't know either, but it's the powerhouse. It is the powerhouse. Uh, did you see like Mayer Richard Mayer was all over like a handful of these studies? Yeah, you know? well, I mean, yeah, yeah. he's that's the a, big that's a, that's a rabbit hole, right? Like, it is going, a rabbit hole. Yeah. I just, you know. We could spend an episode on talking about uh, the power of the multimedia principles. Yeah, better I mean, we, better better living through the multimedia principles. Right. From we could we could have an episode where we talk about why is it that old white guys are so important to our thinking about uh, schooling, but um, but that's probably by, pretty obvious. By two old white guys. <laughs> by two old white guys. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's yeah. Before we go down that rabbit hole, let's get to joys. Do you have a yes. joy there, Scott? Uh, do I have a joy? Um, I last. So I believe last week I was talking about World Cup uh, being yes. a joy. So what I'm going to add on to that, that's also football related. And I don't think I've talked about this, but the brain doesn't work like it used to um, is my daughter and I, who she she and I are the ones that watch the football together. My wife will watch it if it's on, and sometimes we'll come out for the for the goals or whatever. But it's not it's not quite as you know compelled by the sport as my daughter and I are. But we watched um, All or Nothing, uh, which is a, uh, for Arsenal, which is a uh, for those of you who don't know, it's an English football club um, that has a long history and has consistently been one of the better clubs in the league, but for a while there was struggling and all or nothing is this series on, um, it's on Netflix. Uh, no, no, it's on Amazon prime and they do, um, they follow a sports team for one season and they just sort of, you know, give you a documentary view of how the team operates. So I, I really enjoyed it. They have them for all sorts of teams, not just football teams, but they have them for American football teams. They have them for, um, I don't know what else, but lots of other things. So, so if you're interested in sports at all, this gives you sort of a behind the scenes view. And I think for me, having not seen anything like this before, I, I don't know if we'll watch m multiple ones of these, but it was, it was fascinating to see how these, um, organizations operate and, and thinking about them as a learning environment. It was really interesting to think about how, how do you, build relationships in within a team to help a team learn and become motivated to work as a group. I mean, it was fascinating. So, um, yeah, Arsenal all or nothing Arsenal. Um, it was about the 2021 season. So there you have it. So have, have you seen this video that's been floating around about the etymology of the word soccer? 
Oh yes. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. There. I. Yes, I have. Um, I don't have that's, a dog in this fight. <laughs> What's well, actually like in like in English? You know, it was from the folks in England yeah. who called it soccer. Because it was for association soccer. So they mm-hmm. took the association and turned it into soccer. Like the. Yeah. So. Yeah. So I don't really have it. a dog. In a, I, I, I go back and forth. Football, soccer, whatever. I don't care. Yeah. I That's, mean, if I'm talking to Americans, I tend to say soccer because if I don't, it gets confusing. Um, but when I talk about it in the privacy of my own home, I talk about it as football. Um, all right. So. But I often say Premier League football or World Cup football or, I, you know, put something, a modifier in front of it. So it's clear I'm not talking about, like, Americans. throwing the old pigskin around, as they say. <laughs> All right. There you go. Uh, so my joy is mm-hmm. a uh, a series that just ended the second season on uh, HBO Max, uh, The White Lotus. Oh, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah. I, I want to talk about it without talking about it too much. Mm, um, so it it is uh, the two seasons are based on in different locations. Like what the first season is in Hawaii, the second season is in Italy, um, and the uh, both are set in like really high end resorts. Um, so these are like for like really wealthy people who are going and vacationing there. And the in both um, both seasons, the first episode starts with you know, somebody has died and you don't know who like the first episode of the first season starts with them putting a casket onto a plane. And, and then it's like, okay, well, somebody, somebody, somebody died. We don't, somebody we don't has know. died. Yeah. Yeah. And in uh, the second season, that's how it starts too. somebody is, they find they're pulling somebody out of uh, the water having drowned. Mm-hmm. And so you spend the entire season trying to figure out how someone is going to die and who dies. And, and so you're getting attached to characters and uh, well, let me say it's, it's hard to get attached to these characters. There's some people who are pretty like um, terrible human beings, terrible human beings. Um, There, there are no heroes. There's, there's no villains either though. I mean, they're just like, just not likable people, but like, but you see enough of yourself in them that you just stick with it. Right. And, but there's this foreboding sense throughout it. Like I, you just, and I think some of it's based on the music because there's always like this and the, it, it's written by a guy named Mike White, who, uh, who you, you're, you're probably go, I don't know who that is, but if you look at, look him up on IMDB, you're like, oh, I know who that guy is. He wrote School of Rock. If you remember the School mm-hmm. of Rock with Jack Black. Jack Black. So Mike White was the teacher, the other teacher in that. He mm. wrote he wrote that and he's now like I mean, yeah, the White Lotus is gonna win Emmys, it's gonna win, yeah, it's just awesome. You know, and Jennifer Coolidge, who is uh she was in Best of Show Best of Show. Um Best in Show. Best in Show, yeah. Um She's kind of she's been in, you know, um legally blonde. She's she's that, you know, blonde haired, you know, sort of ditzy character. Mm-hmm. She plays an ultra rich um 
woman in this that she take steals the show. I mean, it's basically it doesn't you know, surprise me. She's fantastic. She is fantastic. And she's really fantastic in this. Yeah. And so um yeah. So I think she just won like Entertainer of the Year by Entertainment Weekly or something. So she's just mm. like, yeah, this is her moment. Like she's she's been around for a while, but this this has been a, the, it's a perfect vehicle for her. And so if there's for no other reason, watch it for Jennifer Coolidge because she is awesome. That's yeah. good to hear. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I will say I I've heard from a lot of people about this show. Um, I've heard that this season, the second season, is better than the first season. So I don't know if you have a take on that, but. So I'm halfway through the second season. So okay. um I think that um what depends on like what what is is better. Like yeah, I mean the themes are different. Like yeah, so I've heard that too. Yeah, so I mean I think sec the uh, second season's really a it's it's much more focused on like sex. It's not like there's gratuitous sex mm -hmm. or anything like that or or really any nudity to, to speak of. Um, but it's just about relationships and, and fidelity and, you know, yeah. Yeah. yeah that's and, what I've heard is that the first one's more about privilege and right. wealth yeah. and, and that this one's more about sex. Yeah. The first so. season is definitely about a lot more about privilege and because they're in, in class mm -hmm. um, because the one family who, you know, the, the mom is like the CEO of some major company. They, the daughter brings along a friend who is not of a, a wealthy uh, background. And so, you know, and then he, she he plays a foil for that, for all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, and then the, the, the daughter's friend falls for like, like one of the workers at the resort. Uh, and so there's all that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so, um, yes, the, the two like millennials in there, uh, they drive a lot of that narrative and they're so dislikable. <laughs> just, ah, uh, it's like every, every TikTok person who like grates your skin. Mm -hmm. Like we just put all of those people together in one big, you know, bucket. Wonderful of fun. And then these two characters are built on that. Like, and it's like, ah, oh, yeah, they're hard to like. Hmm. Yeah. And they don't see their own hypocrisies, you know. They never do. Yeah, they never do. Yeah, but I—I I mean, I think that was probably probably the hard part of season one, but it was still brilliant. Yeah, yeah. some good writing. Cool. Yeah, White Lotus. White and, Lotus. Yeah, and there we go. And there we go. Yeah. So the this has been uh, science in between, and we'll catch you next time. In between. See you then. <laughs> Bye now. Thank you.